The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Well, I want to ask you to return again to the Upper Room Discourse. We find ourselves this morning beginning chapter 16, John chapter 16. I've been so encouraged moving through this passage in my own heart, in my own soul, and I trust it's been an encouragement to you as we hear the words of our Lord speaking to his disciples on how to be finally and thoroughly prepared as he left them without leaving them, to teach them how to be with him without him. We find ourselves in chapter 16, and things are going to begin to move very fast in this chapter, into the final prayer of our Lord in John chapter 17. For this morning, we'll direct our attention to verses 1 through 4. John chapter 16, follow along as I read verses 1 through 4. These things I have spoken to you, so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you, to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Yesterday, as you've been hearing this morning, uh, six of us returned from a two-week ministry trip over to Germany and to Russia and to England. Um, had such a wonderful time with the Taylors and the Schultes and my wife, and we had a, a, an amazing experience that we're going to give you a full report on tonight. But there was a heavy theme that kept recurring throughout the trip. I should have seen it coming. I should have thought it through. I should have had a, a better preparation of my own heart to see that the Lord was going to put this accent on the trip in my own thinking. It was a heavy theme. We met at every place we went. It was continued to be taught to us both through the historical sites that we experienced and through the people that we encountered. I knew it was going to be there and I knew it was going to be present in our thinking before we had had left, but I had no idea how dominating this theme would be. The theme of that trip really is accented and explained in the theme that are in these first six, first four verses of chapter 16 of John. It's the reality of being persecuted for your faith. It's the reality of suffering for the gospel. Now, now don't misunderstand. I don't think our team suffered for the gospel on this trip. In fact, I would be very clear. We did not suffer for the gospel on this trip. Oh, there was some pushback on witnessing opportunities, and there was some frustration with theological things that I I preached on at some of the conferences, but there was no suffering. There was no enduring pain and emotional trauma and the threat and the point of physical torture or even death. Yeah, there were witnessing opportunities that were rejected, but none of us received any threat of harm because we were believers. First, we took our tour of Berlin when we first got into Germany and um, I wanted to make sure that we got to go to the Pergamum, which is a, 
a museum in Germany, in Berlin, and the Pergamum is a very interesting uh, museum because most of the, the things that are presented there were either stolen by the Germans early in uh, between the first two world wars, or they were purchased by the Germans by countries that wanted to download things so they could make money. One of those such um, um, priceless things to look at is the Ishtar Gate. The Ishtar Gate was the blue gate of Babylon. It was lined by a processional way, and it was without question, 100%, everyone knows, you know, some historical uh, discoveries are iffy. This is not iffy. This is 100% that this was the exact gate that Daniel would have walked back and forth through every day of his time in Babylon. Beautiful blue glazed brick. And on that processional way going into that gate are a series of reliefs and paintings of what animal? Lions. They revered and worshipped lions. They thought of them as the, as the greatest threat. And it made us think from the very beginning of the awesome, incredible trauma that Daniel endured by being thrown into the lion's den when he was probably 80 plus years old. So from the very first day, we were already, this was after we landed and went straight over there. This is, this is uh, uh, we were beginning to see suffering. Then we had a day to go up around go down on our way to the conference toward uh, Stuttgart in the Wittenberg. And I made sure that we got a chance to stop there and see, because if you're that close, it's wonderful to see the, the history and the cradle of the Reformation. Wittenberg was where uh, Martin Luther was transferred after he had a crisis of faith to go study at Wittenberg. And it was there that he came to a true understanding of the gospel and in 1517 took his 95 theses, which were uh, protests against the Catholic faith that put itself above the gospel. He nailed those 95 theses to the church door and the Reformation was begun. Then we began to see the history of Martin Luther, which from that point on, he was a wanted man. His life was marked he was open season from the government, and which was a church state then, to be able to kill and execute him when he was found. He was wanted dead or alive because of the stand he took on the gospel and the gospel that he preached and proclaimed. Then we were on our way to, I love to say it, the Shepherds Conference in Germany, otherwise known as the German Shepherds Conference, yes. On that way down, we stopped at the Wartburg Castle, which was a ride, uh, train stop away uh, from, um, uh, it was right off of the train tracks, I should say. We walked up and looked at the castle where Luther was taken by Frederick the Wise and put up there in a little room that, that he was holed up in for 18 months for one purpose, and that was to translate the, the Greek New Testament into the German language so the people could actually read the Bible and hold priests accountable for what the word of God said. Then we were down to Germany in the conference, and I began to hear of uh, the men who were ministering in Germany in, a, in an incredibly postmodern, post Christian kind of world. One guy said that there's a major uh, 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 person in his church who's come up against this pastor trying to tell everyone that this man preaches the same gospel that Luther preached and everything Hitler taught was based on what Luther preached. The twisted perversion of the historical perspective. Wonderful time hearing of, of how those men are suffering 
disorientation, being disenfranchised, being alienated for the gospel. And then we landed in Russia. And I want to tell you, I don't remember ever feeling so unqualified to preach because the subject that was given to me for that conference was suffering for the gospel. And so I had great authority to say what the word of God said, but I had no experience that would match the experience of the pastors that we talked to in those those meetings. There are countless things that I remember about that trip and will always remember, but very few I'll remember more than when we had a lunch. Uh, Steve was there and Bob was there with some Russian pastors. We were talking about the subject of suffering for the gospel. And one of the men, in a very understated way, just simply told us of the account of him being 13 years old. He was about our age. When he was 13 years old, some men came to the door and asked if his father was a pastor, and pastor so-and-so, and he said he was. And they took him out and executed him for being a Christian. I talked to him a couple of times during the conference. And I just felt like I was on holy ground to talk to this man who grew up as an orphan without a father who was killed because he would not deny the gospel. As he talked to me in that lunch and even later when we had a chance to talk the next day in the conference, it was very clear to me that this man had a category. He had a theological shelf in his mind for suffering that was proven, that was tried, and that was true. We spent a lot of time with our missionary friends in Russia who experience the threat of neighbors almost daily, who are being followed almost daily by the government, who are in constant intimidation with the local authorities because they're Christians. And so much has happened even in their lives in recent weeks that it wouldn't be profitable for me to even make a public discussion of that because it would be recorded and could be tracked down, frankly, and would be not beneficial for them. Then the last leg of the trip was through Oxford and England on our way back through. And we went up to Oxford for the specific purpose of seeing the site where the martyrs of the English Reformation were burnt at the stake under Bloody Mary, came to the throne in 1553. Three English reformers were held captive there and burnt alive, tied to a wooden stake, because they would not deny the gospel. They would not bow the knee to Catholicism. Then we also visited some sites in in London where the Puritans were beheaded, where Lady Jane Grey was executed by beheading on the London Tower Courtyard because she stood true to the gospel. Why bring all that up? We'll talk about that more tonight. But it was no accident what the Lord was doing in those things and in my heart, knowing that we would come home and land yesterday afternoon and find ourselves in John 16, 1-4 this morning. This is no accident that in our study of the Upper Room Discourse, the theme of suffering and persecution for the faith was illustrated for us in so many of the places we saw and now is right on the pages of Scripture, dancing on our eyes and serving as a prophecy and a warning for us this morning. Again, Jesus is preparing his men throughout this instruction to be ready to live life for him and with him spiritually without him being there Physically. Now, they were, there were some very brave men when Jesus was around. I mean, Peter took a swing at a, at a soldier's head trying to decapitate him, only clipping his ear. 
He was pretty brave when Jesus was there. Wouldn't you be if, if you saw the miracles Jesus had done? Wouldn't you be if you saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? I mean, what's the worst thing to do to me if you're Peter? They can kill me and he'll just bring me back alive. Pretty brave. But as soon as he was separated from Jesus, a few hours from, from them, what happened? He melted and denied the Lord three times in just a few hours. Jesus deeply understood the trauma they were going to experience on living life with him and without him. So this whole last uproom discourse, where they begin the uproom, they have the last supper, he washes their feet, Judas walks out of the room to deny the Lord. He continues to instruct them. Two predominant themes keep coming up. Preparation from suffering, which will be undergirded by the presence of the Holy Spirit and the need to love one another, to stick together during this persecution. Almost no mention, no mention of the Lord himself from his own lips until we get to two verses in his prayer in chapter 17. Utterly unconcerned about himself and utterly focused on his friends. Well, much of what he said has been teaching them to establish and correct their expectations. He wants their expectations to be right and biblical, and he wants to correct their wrong expectations, which raises the whole issue for you and me. What do you really expect from being a Christian? You're going to be man of the year? You're going to be student of the week? You want to be, uh, give bumper stickers for what a nice guy you are, a nice gal you are? What should we expect from being a believer? I mean, aren't we generally nice people, I hope, don't we want to be reflective of the, of the glory of the character of Christ and be kind and gentle and attractive in our personalities and in our character and in our integrity? Wouldn't people just fond at us? Wouldn't they just love us? Wouldn't they love to hire us and give us great responsibilities? Well, the answer is sometimes they would. That certainly happened in the life of Daniel. It doesn't happen for everyone that way. One of the most needed components of our faith is a theology a good, solid, biblical theology of persecution and suffering. And the question I think the Lord has for us in this text is, do we have a biblical theology for persecution and suffering? How can we, how do we understand being persecuted for our faith from a biblical perspective? Not from our own perspective, but from a biblical perspective. God doesn't call us to go be persecuted. He calls us to be faithful, and the persecution follows after that. We're not required by the Lord to put a sign on our back that says, kick me, I'm a Christian. What we're required to do is be faithful and holy and honorable to him. And certain things will respond as a result of that that, that are way outside our expectations. I think the disciples during this time were thoroughly committed, even walking down toward the Kidron Valley where, where he's going to go across the valley into the Garden of Gethsemane and pray and then be arrested. I think they, at that point, were still fully convinced that tomorrow Jesus will come to the Temple Mount, he'll win another argument, and eventually he'll establish himself as the Messiah, as the King, and they're still concerned about where they're going to sit on the throne with the Lord. The right, the left, close, far. Jesus keeps telling him. Son of man's going to go. He's going to suffer. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to die. He's going to rise again. They say, great, where am I going to sit? They were clueless to it. And before we're too critical of the disciples, you and I live as perpetual examples of biblical cluelessness every day as well. So when we look into these first four verses, I want to find with you in 
highlight with you three provisions for the hour of persecution. Jesus wants the disciples to be ready for the time they'll be persecuted. And he provides for them three provisions for the hour of persecution. The first provision is in verse 1. It's divine prevention from stumbling, defecting. Divine prevention from stumbling. Verse 1, Jesus says, These things I've spoken to you so that you may be kept from defecting, from stumbling, from being a scandal, literally. Now, two subjects that Jesus has been teaching about in the previous three chapters come into context with one another in these four verses verses in a very unusual way. The Lord has taught that persecution is inevitable. It's for every believer at some level, some worse than others, some lighter than others. Remember back in chapter 15, verse 20, when he said, Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Two great promises. If they heard my explanation of the gospel, they'll hear yours. We should be thoroughly motivated to be witnesses on behalf of Christ because of that. He is with us and he knows. But not everyone will respond in a positive way. Some will persecute us. Because they can't, to, can't get to Christ, they'll get to the closest thing they can get to, to Christ, which is us. Which is why Paul said to the Colossians, I daily, I make up for that which is lacking in Christ's suffering. It's a strange uh, kind of a terminology. Catholic churches use that for years to say, see, Christ isn't finished suffering, so we'll re-crucify him in the Mass. That's not what Paul was saying at all. He was saying they can't get to him, so they can get to me. He took the cross for me, I'll take the blows for him. That's what he's saying. He's also, along with that theme of persecution, been teaching that the Holy Spirit will be sent with the disciples during their persecution to sustain them, to be faithful, to sustain and comfort them, to maintain their equilibrium. Now, we have to ask a question we'll come back to in a minute. What about those who don't suffer for their faith? I mean, we live in Kansas City. It's the persecution we're going to, to, to receive might get as serious as an insult, right? I mean, some of us in an isolated situation might have been threatened physically for our witness for the gospel. But most of us, the worst that will happen is we'll be ostracized or alienated or disenfranchised or lose position. Very few of us will be tied to a stake with our hands behind our back and said, repent and recant the gospel or we'll light you on fire. But God calls some to do that. There are people in Sudan today who will die because they're Christians. Before you and I put our heads on our pillow, they will be in heaven. Their faith will be sight because they were faithful to the gospel. So with both the hostility of the world and the presence of the helping paraclete, the Holy Spirit, full in Jesus' focus, John now records the words of the Lord, defining the subject for the disciples in reference to being comforted and also being faithful. Now look at this word. He says that you'll be kept from stumbling. It's an interesting Greek word. It's it's from the word that we get scandalized from, that you won't be scandalized. Now, typically, we look at the word scandal and think of the the tabloids. That's not exactly the meaning of the original word. It literally means to fall, to to trip. 
And in this context, it means to give up one's faith or to fall into sin. That we won't become a scandal, a public obstacle of questioning of the gospel. It's used in chapter 6, verse 66, in the active voice, where Jesus' followers begin to grumble and murmur and turn away from him. They scandalized him and away from him. And here it's in the passive voice. Jesus doesn't want us to defect. Now, we have to ask this question because if you're an honest believer, if you're an honest man or an honest woman, you're going to come to some situation either in thought or in word where you can see that you can identify with Jesus, where you, with Peter rather, where you either denied the Lord or were unfaithful to take a stand for the Lord, right? I remember it as clear as I can right now, as clear as a bell, two weeks after I was saved in high school, I was on a track team. We were running track, we were running uh, 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 800 uh, legs, and, and uh, we were, we'd run 800 meters and then walk for 100 and run 800 and walk for 100. We were running, and I was dying, but I, I, I was so excited about, about the faith and being saved that I, I was telling my friend John and my friend Mark about, about Christ. And I'll never forget what they said. Oh, come on, Holland, you're not a Jesus freak now, are you? And I remember feeling sick at my stomach and saying, oh, no, 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 I'm not one of those guys. To this day, that response still haunts me. It still bothers me. Now, that's more overt, but have you ever been in a situation where you could have taken a stand for the gospel and could have said something and didn't? Well, is that any worse than Peter saying, I don't know him. Who are you talking about? I don't know him. Who are you talking about? And as the synoptics say, I don't know him and began to curse and use foul language to prove he didn't know Christ. We can all identify with Peter. I hope we can identify with the fact that he came to his senses and eventually was faithful to the point of death. But there's another kind of denial, and that was Judas. Judas denied the Lord and died a remorseful man, committing suicide by hanging himself and so ineffective that the branch must have broken, and he fell on some rocks, and Acts says his insides spewed all over the death site. There's a difference between a momentary weakness and a permanent denial. All of us can identify with a momentary weakness. That's not what he's talking about here. Jesus is saying, I don't want you to fall away. And in his mind has to be Judas, which they would remember the next day for certain. The first provision for the hour of persecution is divine prevention from suffering. I mean, look at exactly what he's saying. (laughs) I've spoken to you so that you won't fall. I've given you expectations that are real. I've corrected your expectations. You're not going to be man of the year. You're going to be persecuted. Where are your expectations? Well, there's a second in verse 2. Redirected expectations of persecution. This one's interesting. Redirected expectation of persecution. Because they thought, okay, well... We're going to be persecuted, and the people in the world will want to hear the gospel, and certainly the Romans will want to keep their gods, and they won't want to worship the one true and living God, and, and certainly the pagans will want to keep their, their gods in their houses, and, and, and Jesus says, no, 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 the source of the persecution is going to surprise you. They will make you outcasts, what does it say, from where? From the synagogue. 
The source of this persecution is going to come from the people who should know better, the people who say they know God. These are the Jewish brethren who said, we know God, we're the proselytizers of God, we're the evangelists for God. He says, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering service to God. At this point, you've got to push time out. What? Wait, wait. Outcast from the synagogue? Aren't they going to embrace the Messiah? What, 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 did you really say killed? Amazingly, the message of grace, the message of mercy, the message of truth, the message of hope in Christ has never been popular. Isn't that remarkable? I mean, what kind of fool says no to forgiveness of sins? What kind of fool says, no, I don't want to receive mercy from God? What kind of fool says, no, I don't want unmerited favor on behalf of Christ accredited to my account? What kind of fool says, no? And the answer is those who've not been called. Whether it's with neighbors or classmates or coworkers or teammates or family members or even acquaintances, very few people see you as a godsend for them to tell them the gospel. In fact, If what Jesus said is accurate, and we know it's true, there's a narrow gate, few that find it, and the what? Broad gate that most people go into. What that's telling us also with the the parable of the sowers, three of the soils rejected the gospel, even after some initially receiving the gospel. Only one was the right soil. Those two work in tandem to teach us that it's going to be few that find it, and most that reject it and reject us. This is a remarkable prophecy given by the Lord. Excommunication, suffering, and death for believing and preaching the gospel. So what are your expectations? Excommunication, suffering, and death. One of the most unbiblical of all the ideas in our generation is the notion that our well-being, our health, and our prosperity and our physical blessings come automatically if we honor God and honor the gospel. That's just not true. Turn off those TV preachers who tell you the more faith you have, the more you'll get. Turn off those TV preachers who say the more faith you have, the healthier you'll be. Did you know that God oftentimes sends physical infirmity? And God oftentimes sends financial ruin, so that he can purify and sanctify us. Sometimes it's a result of irresponsibility, but most of the time, under the careful watching hand of God, those come from God, not the other side. And when some preacher tells you, if you follow God, you will be blessed in every imaginable way, tell him to open his Bible and read John chapter 16, which says, that's not the way it's supposed to happen. 2 Timothy Chapter 3, verse 12. This is a haunting verse. Indeed, all those, don't you wish it said, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted? doesn't say that. Guess what? He says, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You don't even have to be faithful. Just have the desire to do that, and persecution will follow. Acts chapter 14, verse 22. Paul's strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. How strange this must have seemed at first. 
These disciples had just followed Jesus at the first of the week, walking in the triumphal entry uh, where, where, where all these palm branches are laid down, and they're saying, Hail, King of the Jews, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, you are the Messiah. And man, did they like walking behind Jesus during that parade. And now he says, they're going to kill me, and then they're going to persecute you, and then they're going to kill you. But the surprising element of this prophecy is not so much that that was going to happen, but the source from which it would come. Outcasts from the synagogues. This means that those who claimed to know and love God would be the ones offering the serious persecutions. Look at the last phrase in verse 2. It gets worse. They actually think that they're doing God a favor by persecuting you. They think God is on their side persecuting Christians. When we were in um, Oxford looking at that little place in the road, there's a little marker in the road where Cranmer and Ridley and Latimer, those first English martyrs from Oxford, were burnt at the stake. Ridley and Latimer being tied together, uh, back to back, being burnt together, and then Cranmer, having seen that, recanted only to recant his recantation, it was burned anyway. Catholic persecution of these men was in the name of God. In fact, while Cranmer was being burned, there was a Catholic priest, as he was dying in agony, standing beside him, reading a sermon about the efficacy of the Mass to save a human soul. I think what was traumatic and Really puzzling to those of us who were there, the six of us who were there, was there's full traffic, bicycles, people walking by, right by that crossing road, no one stopping. We were almost run over by bicycles out there in the, in the middle of the road looking at this and taking pictures of it and having a moment of just prayerful meditation. The source of the persecution was those who should have known better. Now, can I give you a confession? I haven't been seriously persecuted in my life, but I've been severely criticized. I've got arrows in my back just like you do. It's remarkable to me that when I look back at the people who've criticized me over the course of my Christian life, most of them are in the church. Most of the deepest wounds you'll ever experience because of your stand for the faith will come by people who say they love God. Now, sometimes that's misguided. Sometimes that's misinformed. I was certainly like that as a young, young believer. I, I, when I was a young believer, you know, God and I were the dynamic duo. I was God's conscience on the earth. I mean, I remember pummeling people. I think I may have told you that one time that I, I saw this, this older lady dressed really nicely, buying food, groceries and groceries, bags of groceries with food stamps. And I was behind her, you know, God and Rick. And I saw that, and she was dressed to the T. We walked out. She was parked right in front of me, and she was putting her groceries into a, a Lincoln Continental. And I decided enough is enough. Someone needs to tell this older woman the truth about how she's taking advantage of the system. So I said, ma'am, I saw you bought those groceries food stamps. How dare you? How can you possibly do that? Take advantage of the system. For which she responded to me, oh, thank you for your concern, son. No good thing ever comes after sun. She says, this is Tuesday, and on Tuesday, I go down to the 
projects and get the ladies who are homebound, I get their food stamps and get their groceries for them. <laughs> Remember that scene in The Wizard of Oz? I'm melting. That's what I felt like at that point. Some of us have wrongly persecuted and wrongly said things, and we should repent from that, but just have your expectation that your deepest wounds are going to come from people who are supposed to be on the right side. J.C. Ryle said, No Christian is in a healthy state of mind who is not prepared for trouble and persecution. What are your expectations for faithful, godly living? Third provision for the hour of persecution is in verses 3 and 4. Comforting understanding for suffering. Comforting understanding. There's perspective that he gives us. He warns us. He lets us know. Verse 3. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning, but because I was with you. Now, verse 3 indicates that there was a claim to religion without a true knowledge of God the Father and of Christ the Son. There's a huge, massive, important principle here. It's right in the middle of all these letters. It's buried here in this verse. This persecution was about the identity and connection of Jesus to God. It wasn't an alternative way of living. It wasn't moralism. When persecution is experienced... It's not true Christian persecution unless it's about Christ and the gospel. Be careful how you interpret oppositions to things like, well, they're persecuting me because I don't cuss. That's not Christian persecution. Well, they're persecuting me because I don't drink. That's not Christian persecution. Well, the fact that I go to church, they're making fun of. That's not Christian persecution. Well, I I don't go see certain movies and they're making fun of me. That's not Christian persecution. The fact that you have conviction and You've thrown out your television. You even go around the block when you see the cable guy. That's not Christian persecution. And the fact that you're pleasant and you smile and you're gracious and you're kind and they say, I don't like that, that irritates me. That's not Christian persecution. These things may be connected, they should be connected at some level with our real Christian convictions, but they're not the real issue. Jesus says here, it's about the identity of God in Christ. That's the issue. The gospel is a set of historical facts and a biblically biblically defined response to those facts. That's the issue. Christ has to be the issue of our persecution, not our lifestyle. What are those facts? I mean, do you realize the ridiculous nature of this? Paul calls our faith in the gospel foolishness. He calls it the foolishness of God. Why would Paul call the gospel foolishness? Tongue-in-cheek, the foolishness of God, 1 Corinthians 1. Because we actually have the audacity to believe that God became a man. We have the audacity to believe that he lived a perfect life, being fully God and truly man. The hypostatic union, as theologians call it. Unbelievable union of God and man. We believe that he died in our place as our substitute for the wrath that we deserve Instead of enduring it ourselves, Jesus absorbed it as our substitute. We believe that Jesus' righteousness, his perfect perfection was given to our account and our sinfulness was put on 
his account at the cross and he proved his worthiness and his identity, his identity by rising from the dead. Those are the facts. And we also believe that the response to those facts is traumatic. That our lives are undeniably different and changed because of repentance based on the gospel. That we live differently because of him and what he's done for us and with us. I, um, yesterday morning, I was very early. Um, uh, we, we had took two cabs from our hotel to the airport. They split us up three and three. And, and in my cab, um, Steve and Debbie Schulte were there. And, and it was, I was sitting in the front seat with a, with a Muslim cab driver. Steve and Debbie were in the back. And we just started talking, and um, I don't know how we even got into it, but uh, we got to the gospel, and I just began talking to him. And he goes, oh, no, no, we, we, I'm a Muslim, and, and um, I believe in Islam, and we, we, uh, we have Jesus in our faith too. And I said, you have the wrong Jesus, friend. You, you, G- Muhammad did not die for your faith. Muhammad did not die for your soul. Muhammad didn't die for your sin, but Jesus did. And it's only through him that you're going to find protection from God in the great day of judgment. And I began to talk to him about judgment. And it was very clear that you know, it, the stiff arm was out. And he didn't want to hear anything about that. But I remember thinking, because I'd been reading John 16 all week in preparation for this, I want to make the issue that he's rejecting Jesus not a way of thinking. Jesus, not a Christian way of living. Make sure he's rejecting the fact that Jesus died for his sin. And at least at that moment, he rejected it. Now, as we're getting out, we tipped him handsomely. And uh, Steve left him not only a track, but an invitation to a church plant that we knew of. We're excited to leave that with him. And who knows? His name's Amir. Love to see him respond and be great to see him in heaven someday. There's an example of this kind of misunderstanding, by the way, in Psalm 95. and It's so illustrative. I'd like you to look there. In Psalm 95, you have the recounting of the, the grumbling and the, the people's rejection of God's saving grace in Israel. And the psalmist says in verse 8, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the days of Mesa in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, when they tried me, though they had seen my work. And for 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who err in their heart. Here it is. And they do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter into my rest. They do not know God's ways. Our understanding of salvation is based on God in Christ and his way. He is the way and the truth and the life. Look back at chapter 16, verse 4 of John, though, because this is, a, this is an interesting verse that's caused some heartburn for people. What does Jesus mean here? The things that I, I did not say to you at the beginning, these things, rather, I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. What does that mean? If you're with us, shouldn't you have told us? As long as Jesus was present with the disciples, think about this, he did not need to stress the issue of persecution. They weren't after these men. They were after Jesus. Why? Because he was there to comfort and protect the the disciples. They didn't need this kind of instruction. 
Also, most of the opposition was directed toward this miracle worker, toward Christ himself. But now, as Jesus leaves, things would be different. Without his presence, things would be entirely different. That moves the motivation of the whole uproom discussion back to preparation. He wants these men to be ready. It's not going to be easy. Now, I want to put all this into focus, into someone who understood the full circle of this. Peter denied Christ. Peter was restored by Christ. Peter denied Christ three times. He was able to be restored three times by telling Jesus he loved him three times. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. Because this is the theological reflection on the thinking of suffering that, that Peter outlines for us. The whole book of 1 Peter is really about suffering and being faithful in the midst of suffering. Jesus said, suffer because I suffer, find help because I found help. In 1 Peter chapter 2, first in uh, verse 21, you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you, to do, for you to follow in his steps. What did Jesus do when he suffered? He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, publicly insulted and abused, he did not do the same in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. That's amazing. He uttered no threats. They were killing God in the flesh, and he didn't utter a threat of, I'll see you persecuted in hell forever. He, he was our example. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Look over at chapter 4, verse 12. As he's ramping up to finish this letter, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing. The word testing and temptation, by the way, is the same Greek word. It depends on which way you respond. You respond what right? It's a test. You respond wrong, and you're tempted to sin. As though some strange thing were happening to you. This is the same thing Jesus told Peter on the way through the Kidron Valley. Don't be surprised when it comes expect that it's going to come. Make sure your expectations are biblical. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Look at this. In verse 16, he says, the degree to which you share the sufferings of Christ. Not everyone will share the sufferings of Christ to the same degree. Not everyone's called to suffer at the same level. We'll see that in a moment. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory of God rests on you. Make sure, though, I love this, that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, this is the third and only, it's only used three times in the New Testament, third and final time the word Christian is used. If he suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glory, glorify God in this name as a Christian. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and it begins with us first. What's it going to be like for those who reject the gospel? If he's going to discipline us, think about what he's going to do to unbelievers. And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Here it is, verse 19. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God does this sound like the example that Peter took from, from Jesus? Shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator and doing what is right. 
They suffer according to the will of God. It's not God's will that we all suffer the same way. Not everyone in this world, and especially in this room, will be martyred for their faith. But we will suffer according to his will. And almost all of those, by the way, will come at the level of insults. Will come at the level of being outcast and alienated, made fun of reviled, distanced. God's will is that we suffer some level of persecution. But the issue is never to go looking for the persecution. The issue is those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, what? Will be persecuted. We take care of our faithfulness. God will take care of of the response. The response is a purifying response. So what's the takeaway for us? We need to evaluate our expectations. Not expect that we're going to be man and woman of the year, but expect that people are going to hate us because of Jesus. We need to see if we desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. We need to pray for the persecuted church. And we need to make so much of Jesus in our life that the gospel is so evident in our living and in our thinking and our speaking, on our lips, that Jesus Christ himself is the issue in how we live and who we are and what we talk about, that they receive or reject him. They don't try to stop this behavior or that behavior or add another behavior. That's all consequential to loving Christ and believing the gospel. We got a room full of people this morning, and I know for a fact that it would be very unlikely that in a room this big with this many people, everyone would have a saving knowledge of Christ. If you don't know Christ, I want to ask you, run to the cross. I want to beg you, run to Christ. Believe the gospel and respond in repentance. We don't work hard so that he'll receive us. We work to be sanctified because He's received us. Run, run to Christ. What kind of fool would say no to that? You say, well, what if that means persecution? That's okay. Because persecution is described by Paul in 2 Corinthians as momentary and light affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory we'll experience with him forever. Are you living for this life? or the next. Let's pray together. Lord, I confess that wading through these verses feels like very foreign territory. Be ostracized by a religious community and people who you love and know to be alienated because of your son, to be ridiculed and insulted and beaten and left for dead because of the gospel. And yet, we also discover from Peter's lips, divinely ordained by you, that we suffer according to your will, according to the degree that you see wise and fit. We're thankful for where we are. Father, we're also probably needy of those sanctifying pressures you put on our life of persecution Make us prove what we believe, live in what we believe, love what we believe. 
then make us look for the world to come with you where our faith will be sight and not try to live in this world of faith and hang on forever. Father, please give us perspective. Correct our expectations. Open our eyes to the world around who needs to hear about you and your saving gospel. Make us ever diligent to make the issue of our conversations the glory of a God who became a man and died for sinners just like us. Bring those to the prayer room who we can serve today, Lord, for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit Mission Road Bible Church dot com.